to Steam Powered Scoundrels, a Malifaux podcast. Fluff Feature Chronicles, Volume 2. Put on a little makeup. But I didn't leave my keys upon the table. Ah, I fucking bet you did. <laughs> I don't have keys and I don't have a table. I'm sure you have keys. You have at least one key to leave upon a table, sir. Maybe. But it doesn't unlock the breach, and that's really all we're here to talk about today. Do you think there's a single breach key? I don't know. I feel like if anybody has it, it's Lucius. Mm, that's fair. Or Zoraida. Yeah. Or uh, the the mimic who is just involved in all governments on Earthside. Antoine. Yeah, Antoine. Antoine de Viz. Yep. I bet, I bet he has a breach key. He's got a breach key. Mm-hmm. He's probably got like 10 of them. Yeah. and Honestly. Well, yeah. Each one of his fingers, different breach key. Mm, clever, clever, clever. Yeah. That way, if, if uh, Zoraida closes the breach with Jackdaw 2 Electric Boogaloo for another 100 years, he can always just, you know, put up a finger, stick it in the air, and, and twist it, and he can go back home if he wants to. Give her the finger. Exactly. Nice. I mean, he's a shapeshifter. He can shapeshift another one if he needs, I'm sure. Probably. Yeah. Anyway, we're here today to talk about Chronicles Volume 2, which is in no way confusing to the last episode where we talked about Chronicles Number 2, which was the second episode of Breachside Broadcast. So, re- redoing the number convention now that we've, we've found a little bit of footing on this fluff feature idea, we, instead of focusing on Breachside Broadcast episode by episode, we just pulled up the whole Volume 2 of Chronicles read through all of the stories inside. We're going to rapid fire discuss them all in one easily digestible, uh, make sure you take your spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down sized episode. Yeah. I mean, this will get us, this will give us a more uh, decent sized, you know, amount of, of things to talk about. I think any one of these would be a, a fairly short conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. These, these were much more, Vignettes isn't the right word, but they were much more together created a vignette, which for for which what Chronicles was as a format made a lot of sense. Yeah. Much more magazine, short story, pulp pulp fiction, in fact, uh, style of thing. And I, what I really like uh, is that this kind of works as a bit of a, works as a Malifaux time capsule. Yes, absolutely. Like there, there, there are some old, old hidden gems here where it's like, ah, that's, that's different. The, the whole, you know, the direction of things changes as they naturally do. Yeah. Well, I mean, just the, the art style by itself, much more, I don't want to say line drawings because they, they do have really good art in the like full color, everything, but it, it's much more stark and they, they do have some really good line drawings of various characters as you go through here. Um, that just is the art minus color. And it's very striking. It's very, it's very Malifaux, just an, an earlier era of it. You know what it makes me think of? What's that? In the end of, what is that? I think, I think that's book three in second ed, where Perdita and the governor general are talking on his moving mansion tank. Yeah. And he's all like, Oh yeah, you were, you were in the first wave through. Of this new breach, and you were the the frontier people, and we didn't have laws because nobody would follow them anyway. And now there is, and you need to step off. This is this art is much more lawless. Is yeah, is the no, style? 
That's a good way to put it. Yeah, it's very, it's very unique. Like, there's not much I can think of that's similar in style to like first edition Malifaux art. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, I'm sure there are things, but I mean, it's it's very much stands on its own. It's funny actually going going through this. I found I found a couple interesting tidbits, and I didn't know this, but apparently at least these first two issues predate the game itself. Oh wow, I I didn't catch that. Yeah, like there was uh, where specifically there's like a a bit about how the game is coming out in 2008 for Gen Con. Yeah. Oh yeah yeah yeah. I see that. And there's there's a little interview or a Q and A Q&A basically about you know what the game is going to be because it's it's funny to see things like you know is it true that there's going to be no dice and it's going to be cards it's like yes the rumor come out does Malifaux not use dice the answer might surprise you yeah but but what square-like object will we use to adjudicate rules rule happenings you see this one's a rectangle and it's a lot of very thin rectangles it doesn't sound like it's going to roll very well yeah, I know, right? You should, <laughs> have, you, have you tried rolling your fate deck and just seeing how that works as a RNG system? I think we should try it. It really just slid. Mm, that's a shame. Uh, besides that, um, there's a couple like faction primers about Rezzers and Guild. Not a ton of information that we don't already know, but there's some... You can see there's some direction changes, lore-wise, especially with the Guild. Like, they say here that the guild was established in Malifaux, and we know, you know, later on they say that the guild was established outside of Malifaux on Earthside during the Powder Wars and came out on top of that. So, you know, minor, minor changes from the original concept, but it's interesting to see that foundation. Um, and apparently, and I don't know if this is in some of the further chronicles, I guess we'll find out as we go, but there was a comic. They had, they had ideas for at least a couple comic pieces that were probably going to be in the, the Chronicles, so I look forward to looking into that, because I don't know if they I don't know if that got followed up on or not Yeah, I could see that working really well in Chronicles, though, especially with like this art style, it, it is it would lend itself to comics quite nicely, I think Absolutely, and then just, just the nostalgia of, at the very end there's a little coming soon the final two factions <laughs> Arcanists and Outcasts Oh, the final two factions, eh? The final two. <laughs> <laughs> Don't think about the other three that come eventually. So hang on. If if uh, Weird started with two for Malifaux, and we're now up to eight, two editions later, does that mean in three well, editions... They, they had announced they had announced Neverborn uh, Guild and Rezzers at this point, I believe. I think they announced Neverborn. So, because they have their little primer on Rezzers and Guild, so... Okay. Five at that point. Okay, fair enough. I was concerned, like, if we're just extrapolating this out, and they started with two here, and they started with four in the other side, does that mean we're going to have 16 allegiances in two editions? It's going to get real crazy. <laughs> uh, the Burning Man brings over all his friends. For oh, some God. reason, all the magic things are fighting in Magic Dead Planet. Good times. Everyone's yeah. gonna have a great time. Turns out the core of the planet is a giant soul stone that's just been liquidized, and they have to kill everybody on it on the planet to energize it. Oh God, I hadn't even thought about something like that. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is what is the core of Malifaux like? If there is magic rock like veined in the surface of this thing, like there must be liquid magma soul stone, right? Ooh, 
I was talking about Earth, but no, I like where that's going. Terrifying. Or, or you could uh, look skyward, since we've previously talked about uh, the moons of Malifaux and how much they're focusing on them recently. Like, hmm, I wonder what those are. Giant soul stones, maybe? Uh, one, one is. The other one is definitely made of cheese. Mmm, soul stone cheese. Well soul aged. Cheese. But anyway... Yeah, no, that's, that's super interesting. Uh, those slight changes you could see. Cause even like the, the guild being formed in Malifaux versus the guild being formed after the, the breach closed the first time in the powder war is like, that's interesting to see it expand that way. But you could also like a, a hardcore canon. Oh, you're, you're retconning things. You could also just argue that history is weird and, uh, you know, Something like that. There's going to be people who go, yes, the guild was was created here because the paperwork says so. And then there's the people going, uh, officially the guild was created there, but you had people in a room on Earthside before that happened talking about it and planning it for the, the grand opening, as it were. The the soft opening was elsewhere Earthside. For sure. So, for sure. I, I think something like that is a cool way for them to really get the feel of this alternate history that they're essentially telling of yeah it's it changes but it's really a question of what new information is is at your disposal to pull from yeah much like real history it turns out all right so uh, i think that's all we need to talk about because clearly all these stories aren't worth mentioning until the outcast and arcanist get here in the next issue right yeah, no, I agree. There's, there's nothing really else of note that happens in this Chronicles. There's just some, there's just some, you know, some interviews and some pictures. That's it. No, uh, no, no fluff whatsoever. Yeah, well, none, none worth talking about. You're, you're talking about the the cowboy cops and the the undead zombie folks. Like, eh, who cares about them? No, no, no. We're we're here. Uh, the first. Look. <laughs> Uh, I was just going to say, Austin Martin's going to be real disappointed if we don't talk about Sonya Crid. That's true. And and you know me with as much as my arcanist blood is all like, oh, Sonya bad. Like, I, I can't say no to a good fire mage. I mean, so- Sonya definitely is bad, but she's fun to read about. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Speaking of Sonya, the first episode, or rather, story we have here is My Name is Master, Witchling Ritual. Say that five times fast, and then come back and, and, well, while you're saying it five times fast, go read it, and then you can listen to us meander about it a bit uh, with more interest. This is by Nicholas Volker. Don't worry, folks. You'll you'll hear that name a couple times. Yeah, and I apologize in advance, if uh, Nicholas, if I am... Uh, just butchering your name somehow. If anybody knows the the weird ways to pronounce last names, it's Hackenberger. <laughs> yeah, that is fair. All right, so this is uh, a Soulstone heist at the at its core at the start. I'd say at least on it on its surface, it starts off as a Soulstone heist, and then it goes other directions by the end. <laughs> yeah, uh, heist on a train, and this is one thing I, I wanted to point out uh, for all. F- all of these stories, they start off as very kind of timeless story prompts. Like yeah. you read this and it's like, this could be a zillion different Pulp Fiction stories. Yeah, like Pulp, Pulp Western kind of dashing bandit on a train situation. Yeah. Start. Yeah, but you, you start off at that, that step zero Pulp Fiction go, and it very quickly grabs and, and incorporates very weird, uh, weird 
hashtag trademark things. Uh, so you even even at this early point where the art's different and the stories are uh, they they have a notably different style than we find later in the like second ed books when we started, but the the feel of the world is already there. It's very textured. So yeah, we start off we start off on this this train uh, in the 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 high society, the blue car on the on this rail uh, where all the rich people hang out with uh, one Miss Julia Goodbody. I fucking this name. We start a, off so strong. A, a Bond girl name if I ever heard one. Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say. Like, <laughs> good body? Okay. Alright. We're, we're starting off strong. <laughs> and she's she's about as... I don't want to say damsel in distress, because she's never really fully in distress. But she's like... She's very doe-eyed. You know... That kind of character. Yeah, na- naive deputant with delusions of adventure. There we go. Roman's got the fancy words I'm looking for. <laughs> and she has a chance encounter with what kind of starts off as our protagonist of the story, which is one uh, Gabriel and his his robot com- or his construct companion Jeeves, who are robbing this train in the guild of their soul stones. Yes, and on the route through to uh, get those soul stones, runs through this this blue car, which, can I just say, the advent of the blue car, I, I want to be a fly on that wall for whoever came up with that. Hey, you know uh, other world Australia where we send all the convicts for labor? Uh, yeah, we're going to send a bunch of rich people there to watch over the convicts, and they're, you know marrying age daughters like they're going to hang out there and we need this train car specifically for them to go feel like they're having an adventure without being in danger you, you know what this blue car is it is the it is the electric jeep in jurassic <laughs> park <laughs> uh nothing bad will ever happen to it yes never certainly not certainly nothing bad could happen here but yeah so our miscreant gabriel um, who is a rogue magic user, an arcanist, if you will, to put a to put a label on it. Yeah, you said protagonist. It's fine. He engages his daring heist of this train car and uh, quickly redshirts a bunch of uh, guild guard, mostly Jeeves. Honestly, Jeeves is really the heavy lifter here. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Jeeves. Jeeves is a good boy because he is a good robot. And unfortunately for our our quote protagonist unquote. <laughs> Um, the regular guard are not all that's there, and Samuel Hopkins shows up, which um, we've got kind of an angel thing going on here. We got Gabriel and Samael. I don't know if you noticed that. I did, and it, it I was definitely rolling around my head like, okay, are we are we coming at this from a biblical angle, or are we coming at this from a Hellboy angle kind of a thing? <laughs> which ultimately is just an extra step towards the on on the biblical angle track but very different connotations um but yeah no and samuel comes in and immediately cheats in this magic fight i mean as as the witch hunters do yeah because as you know they're throwing lightning around because that's what gabriel does he's just like oh yeah your, your lightning doesn't touch me because i'm wearing a fancy necklace um, excuse me, you missed the important part where he kills Jeeves! I was trying to gloss that over so that it would not upset both of us, because I am now crying. <laughs> and then, he's, he has, he has the audacity to say that there is no heaven for robots. How dare you, sir! Yeah, 
Suddenly, I don't feel so bad that Samael's not been great actually on the table for a while. Like, I don't get me wrong. I, I like him in like the, the first ed books when he's hanging out with Sonya and they're, they're going to, to Kythera and everything. He's on, he's honestly pretty cool there as kind of Sonya sidekick. But yep. yeah, no, no robot heaven. I'm sorry, sir. Get out. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, this, this kind of turned me off of Samael. Cause yeah, I like, I like Samael. Like he's, he's kind of, other other than maybe like you know someone who's actually good like he seems like a decent kind of guy yeah he, he's he's he the working man's Sonya. witch hunter exactly like he he's kind of Sonya's voice of reason but like, <laughs> man what did Jeeves ever do he's just trying to trying to be a good robot boy mm-hmm. Jeeves was just in this heist to help get more soul stones so that his dad could make him more robot brothers and sisters. <laughs> Exactly. He just wanted a robot family. <laughs> but yeah, so Sammy Sammy uh kills kills Jeeves and uh basically has has Gabe Gabriel uh dead to rights, you know. Your magic doesn't work on me because I have MacGuffin amulet. Um I will shoot you in the face and you know, you can I can take your dead or yield, you know, I can take you dead or alive. Um except he forgot about the, the doe eyed damsel who bonks him over the head with one of uh jeeves's stovepipes so a little vindication for our boy jeeves Mm -hmm. also i want to point out um with this speaking of the audacity of samuel it takes him a full round of bullets in his revolver to take jeeves out after which he calmly lets gabriel just shoot lightning at him calmly enough that he is like just chit-chatting with him and going, oh yeah, while we're doing this, let me slowly reload my <laughs> revolver one bullet at a time while you tire yourself out with magic that's not going to work on me anyway. I don't think anyone's ever going to accuse Samael of not having cojones. <laughs> yeah. Also, further proof, uh, a la our favorite wizard, Harry Dresden, bring a gun to a magic fight, even if you're the wizard. <laughs> It's true. Because Sam would not have seen that coming, I don't think, in this case. But, uh, oh, and, and as far as the you'll never take me alive, I really appreciated that they, they took that idea, but they turned it on its head just, just a little bit, where he just says, you're not going to have to take me in, you'll have to kill me. And Sam doesn't fight him on that, he's just, have it your way. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. I can, I can do that. Yep. And then bonk. And then the bonkening. Yep. Miss, uh, Miss, Miss Goodbody. <laughs> I'll never, I'll never get over that name. Oh, uh, God, it's so, it's so, I don't, I can't say bad, but I also can't say good. It, it's, it's so just, pulpy, I think is the word yeah, you're looking it's, for. It's very, very Bond, very pulp, and you know what, I was, I was gonna bitch about it, but no, I think I actually kind of love it. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, I think the, the problem would be if they made her the actual damsel in distress, yeah, like she, she's not, you know, com- she's not completely throwaway character. Yeah, she's she's not a fleshed out character, but she's not a main character. She doesn't have to be. She she right. is there in the scene, does what she's going to do, and it's not as uh, it's not as egregiously stereotypical for the the again damsel in distress kind of thing that they could be going for. They they ride that line of naive wants to adventure debutante with her and and 
they do it really well because you, you, they're playing into what your audience expectation is. Because he comes in and goes, oh, let me, I'm just going to get past these guards, and by that I mean kill them. But then I'm going to, by being that striking blue-eyed rogue with lightning coming out of his hands, I'm just going to, you know, steal a kiss and run off to actually steal the soul stones and forget about you. And the audience goes, oh, this is high drama, and okay, she's either going to die by the end of this, or we're never going to see her again. Mm-hmm. And instead, she saves his life. For now. Yeah. And and step I mean, two, forever, run off with cause, him. <laughs> yeah, because they, they, uh, they get the soul stones, they contemplate making, you know, little Jeeves babies, and they uh, jump off the, the train and... You know, remember to to roll with the roll with the landing, and they live happily ever after. Yeah, and I I honestly want to give a, a shout out and round of applause to Miss Goodbody for the first time probably jumping off of anything train like in her life. Uh, I'm gonna have landing, to assume the only time jumping off the train. Yeah, and and she landed in the ditch as gracefully as anyone could manage. Like natural train jumper here should be a bandit. You know what the whole the whole angel thing they they kind of bring that up. Uh, what's the, where's the, where's the line at? She was an angel. At least she flew like one. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about hang a lantern on it. (laughs) So we got, we got Samael, we got Gabriel, and we got Julia Goodbody, the angel, (laughs) flying, flying off the train. Oh boy. (laughs) Uh, but, uh, they, uh, they don't live happily ever after, do they? Wait, did did you just lie to me? You just said they lived happily ever after. I might have lied a little bit, <laughs> because this is a story about Sonya Crid and the Witch Hunters, and nobody gets a happy ending in this situation. So, Gabe goes off, you know, he's got his soul stones, he, he feels pretty good about his life, and he's, uh, we get a little dream sequence where he's got some mad power fantasies, like, <laughs> he's got this dream where he's, he is the new governor general, he's deposed, you know, good old, uh, Herbert. Herbert Kitchener has been deposed, (laughs) and uh, he's now the the tyrant ruler of Malifaux with an army of automatons. But that's just a dream, because actually his house is on fire. (laughs) And, uh, you know, there's one of of two people who's likely to set your house on fire, and you've already had a visit from Samael, so we can guess that it is Sonya Crid. Yep. Also, I'd like to point out, they... When he's talking about having deposed the governor general, they literally refer to him ruling Malifaux from the tyrant's mansion. Like it's not capitalized yet, but you're sitting there going, yeah, now, now how about that for some foreshadowing? Probably accidental foreshadowing, but really good. Yep. I like that. (laughs) Didn't even think about that. But yeah. And, and then all, all laid to ash because Sonya. Yep. So he uh he gets all excited, realizing he's smelling smoke, pulls at the sheets, Julia's gone, and he apparently was <laughs> they they were apparently in bed with the soul stone just scattered throughout the, the sheets, because when he jumps out <laughs> of bed, the soul stone's not in a bag anymore or anything, just kind of clatter to the floor. You know I'm what? like He's into some. He's into some stuff. Yeah, I'm. I'm kind of thinking. I. I. The. The power dream fantasies might have come from uh, being energized by sleeping on them, <laughs> laying in a bed of people's souls that give magic powers. Yeah, that. 
I feel like that's no something one, you're... No wonder he's having power fantasies. Yeah, that's probably something your doctor, or at the time, snake oil salesman, should not prescribe that you take to and call him in the morning. Uh, but yeah, he he basically just runs pell-mell and jumps out the, the building through the the flaming doorways and everything, uh, and then gets laid out by a powerful smack to the back of the head. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's the flat of a great sword. I wonder who has one of those. Also, Julia gets arrested. Um, so sad for her, but I'm sure she's going to have a better fate than our, uh, our yeah, I mean, she, again, like naive debutante. They're probably like, all right, pay the, pay the debutante fine. You've had your, your one adventure. This was dealing with an arrest and it's your first offense. So this is your, you know, slap on the wrist fine. Would you like to buy the bundle of adventure number two, where next time we actually throw you in the drunk tank overnight? <laughs> So yeah, they, they knock him out and when he, he struggles to wake up, he doesn't know how much time has passed. And you, I love how they wrote this just opening of the paragraph in that one sentence. You, you get that sense of him kind of groggily looking around or like trying to look around without opening your eyes and just kind of taking that stock of, all right, where am I? Do I still have all my fingers? Are they still all fully attached? What hurts? And they, they do that without writing any of it, but you get that, that visual sense and they make a big deal that he's in this room in a magic circle. And while it's, it's kind of a point of pride for mages of various types to know their different runes and weird languages so that whenever they see written down magic, they can be like, Oh yes, I am the pompous mage that knows how to do this. He's in the circle and he can't read it. And he's not alone. Sonya's leaning casually against the wall, smoking, probably looking for all the world like she's about ready to wait for somebody to ask her to dance the club, if that was a thing that Sonya <laughs> would ever consider doing. Uh, man, if uh, if Doug uh, left uh, Tony, you know, behind at prom, you know, I guess he could always ask Sonya Crid. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Instead of punching him, she might step on him. Yeah. <laughs> Cause uh, we get a we get a nice first taste into uh, the kind of person Sonya is here. Yeah, <laughs> like this is this is some I don't even know what word to use for this, but it's uh, this gives me some strange feelings. Yeah, she uh, her approach to breaking this man is subtler than I think she is in later editions. Or hell, even in, in the main fluff book, because in the main fluff book, she's, she has like, I am driven by follow the weird Kythera ruins and runes. And that's like all you see of her. Yeah. And I, I think the difference is that's her in the field versus this is her dealing, basically dealing with her department and, you know, the more office work. <laughs> no, 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 of her no, no. Job, I, I, which is not I know what this great. is. This is, this is her training a new recruit. She is she is being the training yeah, manager yeah. right now. <laughs> this is this is Staff Sergeant Sonia Crid, and I don't I don't yeah. I don't like it. So, it's not great. It's and not and by cool. what I mean by all this is she she starts this subtly, like she doesn't yell at him anything else like that. He sees her, realizes he's chained to this chair in this magic circle, which you know no one has ever that that can't be bad for anybody. That's like just. 
getting your hair done, right? It's fine. It's a normal thing that happens. Yeah, on and Tuesday. everybody walks away from it feeling rested and and well uh, well appointed as a person afterwards. So he does what anybody uh, in a sane mage being caught by the wind hunters, witch hunters would do: tries to fry her with electricity. Uh, but it doesn't work. It backfires onto him, uh, and the the way it is described is that he is consumed in excruciating fire. Except it isn't the kind that melts burning flesh. It burns him deep inside uh, with more pain, more terrible pain than the body has capability of sensation. Yeah, it's visceral. I yeah, it, it. it's it is very good wording right there to basically say we are slowly burning away your soul. Soul fire. Have fun with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so he he screams in pain and. Uh, after that has wafted away that you've replaced the scent of what I'm imagining is like ozone burning. I'm, I'm kind of just imagining that after that has been wafted away by Sonia's tobacco smoke. She goes very, very calmly. <laughs> My name is Sonia. When you're ready, we'll talk. Catch your breath, friend. Oh, and God. To, to the point where she pulls up a chair to the perimeter of the binding circle and sits and wait, waits patiently as he's like gasping for breath to kind of bring himself together again as a person and not a, a massive screaming soul viscera. And then he basically, does he knock himself over? No, like just the moment he opens his mouth to even potentially do anything, she flicks her cigarette <laughs> in his face. She puts a cigarette out on the man and fucking just says, idiot, we're not here to talk. <laughs> I don't want to actually talk to you. I'm just toying with you. Like, oh my god, it's so yeah. Good. Just, just based on this, based on this scene, I feel like uh, people who are wanting to play the new Resident Evil game uh, are going to want to to yeah. read this scene with Sonya. <laughs> yeah, like like yeah, Lady Dimitris and Sonya have uh, they could be they could have tea on a uh, on a Tuesday night and uh, have yeah. a lot to talk about. Because then, yeah, because then Gabriel, he, you know, loses control because she's, she's toying with him and burns up more of his soul. And this basically continues until he's a withered yeah. husk of and, a man. And the way, I, I love the way that she keeps him going, is she's literally just describing to him calmly and collectedly, not giving a shit that he's just screaming in pain. It's just like, yeah, this is what's happening to you every time you're doing this. And the fact that you're just enraged by the sight of me calmly talking to you, you're doing this to yourself. Like you, you could, if you had the willpower, presumably, just not do that thing, and you would eventually starve or dehydrate. I doubt they would let that happen, yeah, but you, eh, maybe, yeah, probably. I, I feel like she would if someone was strong enough. She'd just let them die on their own yeah, terms. That's fair. But I feel like most people aren't yeah. strong enough. And we all have a lot of therapy we need to go to yes. after this story. Um, but yeah, he he uh, burns himself away, and uh, that essentially is is him getting his his uh, retail name card for "Hello, my name is Gabriel. I will be your witch hunter today, or your your witchling stalker today." And she hands him a sword and says, hey, go go sniff out some... Go bloodhound a, a mage for me. Thanks. Ugh. Boy. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, thoughts? I, I think the, the big thing I take away from this here is, again, it's it's strange to see Sonya be that 
interpersonally subtle at the at the beginning of that mm-hmm. bit with her, but it makes her ten times more terrifying to me. Like she she was already the I have the iron bound willpower to play with arcane shit that no one should touch, but I'm just gonna go stick my head in it and my face specifically. <laughs> and yeah, this will be fine. I I am supremely confident in myself as a mage to be able to hunt other mages and don't feel terribly much remorse, if any, over this. But that is an entirely different level of drive to seeing her going, in order to hunt the mages better, because I can't be everywhere at once, I need to get this man angry enough that he will burn himself out for me. And I need to do it both quickly and with expending as little effort as possible on my part, because I need to do this repetitively. Yeah, like, I don't, I can't even imagine, like, does she do all of these personally, or? It would make a lot of sense, honestly. Dude, well, on the other hand, I feel like that's maybe the Witchling Handlers are also in the yeah. same boat. Obviously, like, this story predates Witchling Handlers, but I feel like eventually her department has to expand to the point where... She she can't do every single rogue mage that gets, you know, processed by the guild in the same process over and over and over and over. Yeah, and over. especially once Kitchener gets to the point of, like, I need to gather all the interesting artifacts. I need someone to make sure. Sh- right, she's got other Exactly, I need to make too. someone, make sure someone gets me the right pieces um, and that she's not hoarding yeah. the good stuff away for herself. But yeah, no, I, and I think you're right. I I think this is, if we're looking at this chronologically- this is probably early enough in her tenure that maybe they haven't spread out enough to need witchling handlers to do it, but I'm sure she's not doing all of these herself. But at the time, I bet she is, and I bet no one gets as practice at it as her. Yeah, suddenly you kind of start to see why the word witch hunter scares the shit out of mages. Yeah, Yeah. feared. Because if if anyone gets word of this, like as a mage or just as a person like yeah this is this is why Sonya's department isn't as well liked as like yeah. the justices when well, and thinking ahead to again i think that's the the closing story of book 4 when Hoffman is tracking down Anna Lovelace and he's working with a, a captured arcanist to to find her because she's a, a mage yeah um i it's been a while since i've read that one but like I remember when the the mage lady is in a cell and she's expecting someone to come get her and you just hear these big clunking feet come down the hall and she's terrified because you're in, in her uh, internal monologue at that point. And she mentions something about, oh, once the door opens and she realizes it's Hoffman, she's like, oh, okay. Like she, she can take a breath. She is not going to be melted today internally. Maybe. Hopefully. It's not guaranteed at this point. Yeah. Poor Gabe. Poor Gabe. What about you? Any any closing thoughts on that one? I just, in general, like, the pacing of the story is really interesting to me. Because, like, it feels like two different stories. And it just... Because if you kind of follow the point of view of Gabriel, which is kind of the point of view we're given for the most part of the story, like, it... It feels like two very different days. Like, one day he's on top of the world, you know, in this very pulp adventure, and then it all of a sudden goes to this horror dungeon, and 
and and Sonya and uh, yeah. At least she's not nine feet tall. I mean, I don't know if that'd make it better or worse. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> oh man, I think we need to to move on from this one and have some some good educational fun in a museum. Yeah, there's also not any weirdly slightly sexual monster people in this story either. No, definitely not. Yeah, no that that isn't a uh, thing so that would show this up. This is in, called Seamus ca- crashes the funeral. <laughs> <laughs> By you guessed it, Nicholas Volker. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in which we get Molly! Yay! Everybody Molly! loves Molly! Everybody loves Molly. Uh, and she's very alive. Very uh, not undead at all. And she has a press pass in a, in she a stylish hat. She has a press hat. pass and a camera. <laughs> yes. We can only assume that that hat is very stylish, but I choose to assume such. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. And she's at, uh, it's like an archive or a museum. They're not super clear on it. I think they say archive. So I assume there's like a lot of art and stuff that they're opening up here for Malifaux. And she is rather impressed by a certain piece called the Gorgon's Tear, which is not important at all, clearly. And again, starting off with kind of your quote-unquote standard pulp uh, story prompt of, oh yes, there's this uh, famous gemstone that whoever has owned it dies horribly. Clearly... The curse is is real, and that's why no one owns it currently. It's just going to hang out in this museum, and everyone will be fine. You know, yeah, like I I, I like the story of the kind of goes through you know bits and bits about about the the Gorgon's tear. We get our first look at it as a relic, which we do know will be very important for the future of Malifaux. Um, and to start with uh, Bernard Hughes, the first person who discovered it, uh, apparently in the statue of a serpent goddess. Um, and then, you know, he dies a horrible death of burning his own house down because he's paranoid because magic rock make man paranoid. Of his and own that, granddaughter. Yeah, uh, yeah, who he assumes is a neverborn who wants to kill him and take his magic rock. Mm-hmm. And that goes on and on and people keep dying because of this magic rock. One line that kind of got me, though, and this is just a personal gripe, is... They say that um, the the last owner, which was uh, Dorian McKee, uh, after he died and this, the, the Gorgon's Tear was recovered, he had no next of kin, so it was relinquished to the state, which is, you know, the guild, essentially. Yeah. And the the um, the curator of the of the archive says that the governor had no right to keep it. Excuse me. That is the Governor General of Malifaux, of the Guild. If anyone, like, I mean, obviously you can argue whether the Guild is right or wrong, but, like, if someone has the right to just say they own a soul stone, it's the Governor General. Yeah. And again, this is obviously, like, you know, (laughs) coming from years of lore, like, the audacity to say that the Governor General has no right to keep a soul stone just kind of hit me in the funny bone a little bit. Yeah, and I, you know what it makes me think of on that, on that line? Of essentially, it does say these were all donated by the the guild for this exhibit, 
presumably wherever this museum is, the, the guild has done some rubber stamping to okay it being a museum, etc. This sounds a lot to me like they have a propaganda mouthpiece talking to the journalists of, Oh, be, be, you know what? Yeah. Yeah. Be, behold, the, the great and wise governor general sharing the bounty of Malifaux with all the people to come and see in this museum. And yeah, not at I all mean, because he's, he's, he's afraid on, of a curse. He's on the payroll. <laughs> yeah. He's on the payroll. For sure. For sure. I mean, he can, he can editorialize all he wants, but yeah, he is. He's getting that guild script something nice. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they, they have this rock and they, Molly is, is while they're talking, setting up this camera to take a picture of the Gorgon's tear. And as she's taking the picture, she looks and says, wait, is there, is there someone there in the darkness behind the case holding the rock? And the, curator says yes yes there's miss miss and but he's talking in the other direction and there's this uh very prettily dressed woman there who is walking strangely and then bites his jugular out yeah i don't know anybody in in malifaux who would do such a thing biting Uh, museum curators a fine a fine introduction to undead prostitutes Mm -hmm. if there ever was one yes uh and it it again this kind of feels a lot like your opening of a zombie movie where no one knows what zombies are yet and they're just like why is that person walking strangely and they're trying to reconcile the uncanny valley in their own mind while uncertain doom is heading towards them slowly at a shuffling pace uh uh yeah, so he he dies, and that scares like that that gets Molly to stumble backwards with this macabre gruesomeness, just really putting her off of her step. And she's caught and is is whispered sweet nothings to in this thick accent, and it's of course Seamus going, "No, no, no, they know to leave the pretty ones for me." Yeah. Oh my God, he's so like. It, it, it's it's perfectly in character, but he's just so creepy, dude. Yeah, he's oh, he is the cringiest. God. He's so yeah. He's oh god. Like I obviously, it's not like oh man, I wish he wasn't creepy and cringy. Like he's fucking Seamus. He's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Like he's eliciting the exact reaction Seamus is supposed to to elicit. But yeah, he uh, just stabs her through the back. Yeah, and. Uh... It it wasn't as as obtuse as it could have been, but there the word choices there definitely made me go, ah, yes, the uh, pseudo sexual side of the of his his specific way of of serial killing. Yeah, it, it's like a paragraph of romance novel in the middle of a gruesome murder. Yeah, <sighs> Ugh, yeah, uncomfortable. Like he, he- once, once again. This, this character is making me uncomfortable in, a, in specific ways. Making you feel a certain way. You're making me feel things, Seamus. Ugh. Stop it, you dandy man. But yeah, he, he you know, combs through her hair with his fingers, makes the, the contours of her face move around as, as if she were a sculpture to really ad- admire the, the curves of her face. Yeah, Brushes it's, a thumb, a thumb across her blood-stained lips. Like, we're getting, yeah. we're getting real weird, buddy. Yeah, describes her, her lips soft like rose petals. <laughs> The blood like do very vivid, yeah, very vivid description. Yeah, like we're just suddenly in the mind of uh, of Mister Mister Seamus. Yeah, and then despite causing not one but two murders in the space of uh, a minute, maybe less. <laughs> yeah, he he hears faint and rushing footfalls approaching, 
and somehow knows it's the marshal's boot heels coming after him in, in less than a minute. And I'm just like, I'm sorry, we've been we've been in this room for a couple minutes talking about how the owner of this stone and eventually gets paranoid that people are after him. I don't think you have to be in in holding the stone to start getting paranoid based on it. I, well, you know, the thing is, like, he's he's obsessed with certain ladies, right? Mm-hmm. You know he's obsessed with justice. Yeah. He knows he knows those footfalls. Oh, that's fair. That is fair. We would we would <laughs> he can hear, hear her coming a mile away. Yeah. With the echolocation high heels. But yeah, so he he leaves already getting leaves with Molly's camera and the Gorgon's tear. And you would think, like, if that's the reason he's there, which, by the way, speaking of being obsessed with certain ladies, clearly the Gorgon is one of them, too, whether or not he consciously recognizes them as as female or not. Oh, yeah. Yet, yeah. Yet another yet another lady on, on Seamus's list. Yeah. The Gorgon. But yeah, he, he's got his souvenirs and presumably the, the rock he was there for in the first place, and yet still goes, oh, Molly, I'll, I'll be back for you. Don't worry. And then we cut to a different scene, presumably a little time thereafter, uh, wherein Molly's editor is leaving her with a lovely eulogy. And there are many people who are there that while the editor doesn't know them, he knows just because he knows Molly and the joy that he has brought him (laughs) through working with her and always looking forward to reading her column every day. He knows that she has touched the lives of each and every one of these people uh, in that magical smile causing way that she does. Really, really playing up the tragedy here. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, it's supposed to be a funeral, but they're really, Really, really leaning into the oh man, a good a good life was taken here, which I mean is true. Molly is an absolute you know a sweetheart in life and in death, but like they're just really leaning into it. And I, I it's kind of it's really unrelated, but this little this little story is interesting about her her voyage on the Erebus with the uh, which is the first the first ship built on Malifaux's side by humans specifically. Yeah, which considering the lack of of nautical based stories in any of the first or second ed books, the fact that if you go back to Chronicles here, we do have someone that has built a ship and yeah, those seeds were planted early for what's coming to to root later. There's some exploration of the sea happening. Um a vessel without sails, so Something, I imagine, maybe smaller scale, but something like the Titanic, basically. Mm-hmm. And they catch sight of a sea beast uh, that is huge, but appears to be the shape of a dolphin, but has flesh like a jellyfish, uh, notably called Calypso, that Molly dubs Calypso. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, you know, we see that name again. Which, and, and not only the name, but the thing it's attached to also has... Not jellyfish-like, because they're metal, but tentacles. Yeah. But also, like, where where are my jellyfish dolphin, weird? Give them to me. <laughs> make make the jellyfish dolphin pigs, you cowards. Yes! <laughs> Let's go! Oh, new, Swamp new, jellyfish dolphins. New, new Ulix title. Uh, swamp pigs. Well, no, we already have swamp pigs. Sea pigs. Sea pigs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, of course, as all nice things in life, they come to an end. Because Seamus is making another grand entrance. He has decided to come for Molly. Not in that way, but in the way of he's coming to her funeral because he has questions for her. 
Well, and and because he wants to add on his own addendum to the eulogy. Yes. Also that, by making a crude joke about wanting to know her biblically, come on, man, it's a funeral. You're in a church. Mm -hmm. Have you no shame, Seamus? Are they Uh, in a church? I I always had this... As I was reading this, maybe I just missed the the church part, but I I had that image of like it's got to be a if not raining like gray cloudy day outside, and they're they're like right off the uh, the grave already dug or something. I I could be entirely wrong about, about that. that, but that was just the image that came. Yeah, to mind. I, I I don't necessarily know that they say where they're at. Um, hold on, let me. Also, interesting point. Um, as Seamus appears. There are guards that start shooting at him. So apparently at this point, resurrection is enough of a, a known thing that the guild has to like guard funerals. Yeah, that's just, that's odd. I don't know how to, I don't know how to, to follow that one up. Like, yeah, I, I really have no follow up to that statement, but yeah, I don't, I can't find any evidence one way or another, whether they're outside or in a building. Um, when, and ultimately, I don't think it's it's terribly. Oh no, no, important. no! You're right. You're right. They okay. were they were in a cemetery. You were right. Okay. Okay. I just in my brain, I envisioned it like as a wake in a in a in a church. Gotcha. Or like a funeral home or something. So yeah, no, they're in a cemetery, which I mean, still like yeah, I mean, no shame, I, man. Either way works. Um, one and here is the other the other thing is as uh, Seamus gets up there. People are, of course, running. He's got some some bells running interference to keep the chaos up after the, the guards are dead. But uh, the editor, Frank, is, like, cowering off to the side. And, and Seamus is, like, straight up calling him out and be like, you need to watch this. You're going to want to see it. I'm like... That's sick man. Yeah. This is a sick, sick man. Yeah. Very, Matt very is a sick. Hatter, if you will. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, he... I think this is the one time we ever see Seamus with a sword because he, he straight up takes a sword yeah. as they put no, this, it. This, this resurrection scene is fucking dope, dude. Yeah. He pulls out the saber that he's fused with, with the, the Gorgon's tear and then stabs the coffin, which then resurrects Molly. Yep. <laughs> like that is metal. That is some metal imagery right there. Yep. When, and on top of that, again, subtly, the bells that we've seen so far very much described as like pale skin, rigor mortisy, obviously not breathing. The first thing that it says after the uh, coffin breaks and she's run through is Molly's corpse sucked in a quick breath and her dead arm shot up to the grip of the blade that pinned her to the ground. Like immediately, you know, this is something different than the previous resurrection-y things he has following him around that are literally just wandering flesh automatons. So I, I again that that excellent visualization, but also the the subtle differences right away. Yeah. The the Molly is different and whatever power the Gorgon's tear has given Seamus to do this thing has has caused her to be a different sort of undead. Yes. But yeah, he he has question for her. <laughs> Singular question. Because he took her camera, and apparently somewhere in all of his insanity, he knows how to develop film. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, I was going to bring that up too. Like, does he know how to develop film, or does he know somebody who will, without question, develop random photos for this man? I mean, I guess you know, like a poor college student or something who's into photography, probably just give a couple script. 
Why there, Jimmy? Why don't you develop this uh, this fine pictograph oh, no. for me there? And I'll uh, leave your, your aged mother alone for another week. <laughs> oh, oh, again, very sick man. Yeah, so he, he has produced, not just like, and again, mentally, I I put like a a Polaroid, like a, a instant shot Polaroid in my mental picture here, but reading over it again, he's producing like a large photograph, which I immediately now jump to like an eight by 10 at least, which he's just like whipping this out from under his coat with this giant coffin breaking sword. Like, okay. No, it's like, a, it's a full portrait. Cause he's got to point out, <laughs> do you know this woman? Who is this? <laughs> It's like a poster board that he's been carrying around with him. Who is this? I want to know because I want to kill her as well. <laughs> oh, man. Because I'm crazy. Yep. Oh, boy. But yeah, so he he holds up this photograph and Molly's still pinned to the ground like some kind of butterfly stabbed through the wing and somehow still <laughs> oh, flapping. Um, That's some imagery. Right? Is, is like craning and, and he grabs her chin, makes her look at the picture and go, who is this ghostly figure who is, of course, attractive? Uh, <laughs> naturally. Yeah. In, and in a Victorian gown with layered skirts and bodices worn off the shoulders, da, 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 until you get up to her head and there we have full on Medusa and you can't see her eyes because of the shadow of the, the snake hair. You know, I, mm. Okay, no, I have I have a theory. I have a theory on that on on the outfitting of the Gorgon because my brain immediately went to because we just did the the from nightmares chat. And it's like, would they have the same fashion tendencies as a Victorian era woman? Would maybe, but on the other hand, and the theory I have now is the Gorgon's tear has you know absorbed the souls of every one of its previous owners as they've been you know cursed or paranoid or whatever. So I feel like the Gorgon, especially just being in a soul stone that's been possessed by so many, you know, for the time, modern people, is like absorbing these different consciousnesses and these different, you know, sensibilities. Yeah, no, I I agree there. It's basically, if, if she's trapped in there, she's learning of the outside world by, quote unquote, cursing these people and then... Now she has a new friend to pick their brain, probably, well, metaphysically, literally, in, in the tier after they die. And that's assuming she's not doing it by reaching some kind of cursed tendril finger out from the stone while they're in possession of it. But I, I think that's a solid, a solid way to do it. My thought was in the, in, in the case of the tyrants, the other thing I found interesting in the From Nightmares idea is the reason Malifaux City has human-esque architecture is because the dreaming ones that built it essentially accidentally found human dreams in their playground and were like oh this is cool let's build houses with four walls and stairs and then twist them which would explain why they were kind of the fey as a whole were ahead of their times because they were seeing you know they had access to dreams that were dreaming ahead of their times right that's that's an interesting theory i like that yeah like i I think both honestly could work yeah, because I don't think there's anything in Malifaux that only works one way, no, pretty much on no, on a scale not. like that. But yeah, so he he basically goes, "Who look at this photograph?" And every time I do, it makes me laugh. Yeah, and by laugh I mean kill someone. And the the defining feature behind or besides the fact that 
you're everyone who looks at this picture is glad that they can't see the Gorgon's eyes because the gaze is not something a sane man would wish to know. Unfortunately, there are none of those in this story other than Frank, who <laughs> is going slowly crazy as he's watching this happen. And also probably not going to survive. Yeah. But right under where her eyes should be in the shadow is a terrible black smile that she knew a secret is is what this is saying. And Seamus is demanding of, of again, pinned to the, the inside of the casket, squirming Molly do you know her? And again, showing more life than any zombie ever. Uh, she's clutching at Seamus's wrist and going, oh, I know her. I've seen her. And she has the same knowing grin. It's like, oh, okay. So you, you've both somehow been touched by the crazy lady. Okay. And you know what? Rude, Seamus. Calling up a girl just to ask if he can talk to her friend. Rude. Yeah. Not cool, bud. And yeah, that's, uh, they, they basically, uh, leave off after the funeral to, uh, chase the plot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and, and point of fact, we stay in Frank's point of view the entire time. He does not die. At the very end, Frank oh, watched yeah. too scared to blink until they were out of sight. <laughs> that is, uh, that is unfortunate. That is unfortunate for dear Frank. Yeah. So, uh, he's going to need someone to talk to after that. Yeah. He's not, uh, he's not going to recover from that than normal. <laughs> so, uh, final thoughts? I mean, the people who refer to Seamus and Molly as uh, Joker and Harley Quinn aren't wrong, but I wish more of them understood that Joker and Harley Quinn is not relationship goals. <laughs> yeah, this is... As much as it is, like, Molly's origin story, this is not a Molly story. Yeah, no. No this is, way this in is hell. Just, this is Molly's origin story, but this is a Seamus story. Yeah. Because he he does what Seamus do and demand all of the attention at all times. When, and I do think it's interesting that in some ways, I feel that this story captures just the a certain level of the visceral horror that Seamus causes in ways that later ones don't. And yeah. I think part of that is because you have extra high contrast by showing Molly and admittedly, we don't see her that much like doing, we, we don't see her doing enough to be like, Oh yes, you are the, this light in the darkness that is Malifaux. But through Frank telling the, the story and reading the newspaper clipping, you get immediately the, the depth of the tragedy that the world losing Molly is. And that just, Contrasted against the darkness that is all this shit Seamus is doing just really gives gives that extra depth to the, again, darkness that he is. Wherein later stories where Molly's already undead and kind of bound to him, especially for kind of the, the bit there that we start seeing them together, it's less, uh, there, there's less contrast there because she's already dead and less full of life. Right. Part of part of part of his world. Yes. Essentially. Yes. And anytime Seamus isn't with Molly, he's hanging out with either just killing random people or hanging out with Dougie McMorning and Nico, who at best in that triad, Seamus is kind of the, the weird balance between I won't say sanity, but but some kind like of Max. drive. Yeah, he he's 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 the balance between 
the bad shit and ambition. Yeah, he, he's the balance between the batshit crazy and distractible professor professor that is McMorning and Nico that is the so relentless and sociopath and, and meticulous sociopath that he's boring. Um, yeah. Well, that, that's my read on him anyway. Uh, he's he's the most generic necromancer ever. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I am looking forward to his inevitable return as some form of soul lich or construct thing, because uh, I think that will be a, a boon to his interestingness when whenever that happens. You know, yeah, I think I think dying and then coming back from the dead, if possible, for Nico would actually yeah be the most interesting thing that could happen to the guy. I feel like he and and uh, uh, Levy could have some interesting discussions at that point. Oof, I mean. I assume they already have, but beyond that, even, yeah. Yeah, first-hand discussions, if you will. It would make them peers of a sort. Uh, But yeah, no, really, I I think that... I think for anybody looking at later Seamus stories and going, like, yeah, he's a murderer, but he's he's kooky murder, I think they need to come read this one to really get the depth of how horrible of a human being he is. Because the later... I think they do lighten him up a little bit to make him a little more cartoon jokery. Because that's, yeah. hey, we're doing murder, but it's a kid's show, so we can't show it, or it's got to be like laughing gas smiles kind of a thing. And they don't they don't soften it up that much, but it's it takes the edge off compared to this one. Yeah, this is this is very, very, I don't want to say personal, but very individual. Yeah, it's, for lack of a better term, it's an intimate killing. Yeah, that no, that's that's actually the perfect word for it. It is a very... Intimate killing and then resurrection. Like, it's just not... It's not the one event where he kills someone, he comes back for her, which is... Yep. Yep. All right. Let's head over to the Bayou. Yeah! We're doing, uh... Doing, uh, the next one, which is Bayou 2 card. By, you guessed it, Nicholas Volker. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, good stuff. In which we never see the name Zoraida. What? <laughs> I want to say that up front. I went through it a couple times. It's about the Swamp Hag. The name Zoraida is never said in this story. So I'm going to start off with that mind blower. I totally missed that. <laughs> because you you assume that comes from our forward knowledge. We know this is Zoraida. And it's in there. Like, anytime they see the Hag, we're like, ah, it's Zoraida. Yeah. We know who Zoraida is. They don't say that name. This is this predates the name Zoraida as like a pure label on the character, which right away shows the difference in in the terror behind a concept and the terror behind a known personality. Yeah, I, th- I think, and and when you read it without you know like the name in mind, like it's just this mysterious swamp hag. It you really kind of have to come at this like it is the first story involving this character, and it really drives up this just weirdness angle of it yeah i think of the of the four stories i think this is the one that is probably least starting with the the theme of like pulp yeah writing and it is much shorter it's it's just it's three pages it's a very quick one and done but it focuses on a different feel and that's that desperation of the everyman yeah. You know what? If if I were to ascribe this a, a pulp writing prompt, this is deal with the devil at the crossroads. Yes, I, absolutely. Like this is this is a desperate deal with a powerful being, and there's no winning that game. Yeah. 
you can you can pretend and be as confident as you like, but you are not you're not gonna win this game. Uh, and speaking of not winning this game, our story starts off with what's our protagonist's name? Jeremiah. Yes, Jeremiah McCoy. Jeremiah McCoy, um, who's been working at the mines, and he has something he wants. And so he's going to seek out this mysterious swamp hag figure. So he pays out a lot of his money to some random old dude in the city, which is always a good idea, who gives him some mystical advice on how to navigate the swamp and get to this swamp hag. Including a bloody stick. Yeah. A literal stick with blood on it. Yeah. Essentially a magic anti-dousing rod. Yeah. It points you away from the thing you want, so look at the other end, you dummy. Yeah, because... And, and and for it being a probably horrible idea to give the old-timer all this money, like, the old-timer is not shy about, hey, you're an idiot for doing this, thanks for the money... Because the the reason the stick works is it's not just blood. It's blood of a reasonable person who knows not to do stupid things like go into the swamp. Like go talk to a swamp hag to try to get what you want. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he gives him good advice. Like when you're going through the swamp, keep moving. Don't stay in any one place too long because things are going to eat you. Keep your lamp lit. <laughs> It'll be quiet except for the toads. Exactly. Until you get to where you're going, it'll be quiet, except for the toads, but toads aren't going to eat you. And immediately I'm going, uh, how many of these toads are secretly Silurids? <laughs> They're all gups. <laughs> but yeah, he he gets there, and as he's putting the, the stick in the water to kind of look for the next turn he needs to make, there's a splash and some croaking, and he falls back over, and when he stands back up, the stick is gone, so he can't find his way home, and he just starts hearing, ah, Come to game and play, play a game, have you? That's a perfect that's a perfect Zoraida voice. Why, thank you. I got throat cancer by doing it. I'll hear my I'll hear that in my head forever. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he he looks up in his lantern light and there's this hag. All sickly, warty, and and eh. and her breath was like the wind across a decaying carcass. I'm sorry, at the point where you can smell her breath, <laughs> you have come too close. Right. Like he's saying, like, she's so ugly, he could wretch. Like, damn, dude. <laughs> Rude, for yeah. one. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess also fair. Uh, so, yeah, she uh, she offers to uh, have a game with, with this uh, this young man. Uh, which is exactly why he's there. So she has him cut the deck, and she asks for his ante, which he brought a sack full of mostly rocks and a couple silver, because he wanted to appear like he actually had money to play this game mm-hmm. more than once, which was, you know, all a pointless facade, really. Yeah. And she starts dealing and doing, you know, doing the, the Swamp Witch thing, where she's she's reading the cards as as they're they're playing them out, and Apparently, Bayou 2 card is just Texas Hold'em. Yeah. But, you know, with the extra step of someone doing a tarot reading at the time. Yeah, that that seems perfectly reasonable. (laughs) Yeah, nothing bad could come out of that. (laughs) So they they flip through these cards, and she sees, you know, ah, the death death of love. Or no, that's not where she starts. She starts with uh, Jack of Tomes, 
because he covets the treasures, and that's 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 Jeremiah, and you know he covets a fancy girl apparently, mm-hmm. and he's like, oh, I do can't covet a fancy girl. What a surprise! How does this witch know these things? Yeah, and and the whole time in his internal monologue, he's like, clearly the old guy and and she have this grift that they're running on everybody with this blood covered stick and sending people into the bayou. But on the other hand, he still thinks he's going to get what he wants out of it. Like, yeah, um, this dude, this dude is dumb. Yeah, he. And, and again, I think that's born of desperation, at least in part, because he's he's like, for him to admit that this is actually the grift that he thinks it is he has to admit that he is more desperate than he wants to right yeah so the game goes on uh they get to the point where they're putting in final bets and jeremiah's feeling pretty confident uh he's got a full house uh jacks and queens so he's got three jacks two queens so he's like that's a that's a really good hand Mm -hmm. you know i'm feeling pretty confident i think and so they all they both bet in a piece of paper, which is they're basically putting in a demand or you know like a wish or a command that the other has to do if they win. Mm-hmm. That's the whole the whole goal here is one whoever wins gets whatever they want from the other one. And he is he's he's trying to get the riches and the status. It's basically Aladdin in the first part of the the movie Aladdin, where he's like you know wishes genie would make him a prince because he wants to have the the money and status to court the governor's daughter. And and here I was thinking that Bayou 2 card is just poker plus tarot reading plus truth or dare. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't know where he assumes this hag is going to have all this money and status laying around. But, right. Know, desperation. <laughs> and the other thing I thought was like, I don't, I don't know if it, is this the only time we hear of the governor's daughter? We know of we know Francis. We know we know uh Karai's, you know yeah. lost love is his son. I I don't know that we ever hear of a governor's daughter beyond this. Yeah, I at least in the main books, I agree. I don't think we'd ever have, but that's something to keep ideas of or keep an eye out for in future chronicles as well. Because that could be that she's another seed that has been planted for future oncoming things. Or it could be that they said, hey, the governor needs a kid. We haven't right. even named could the just, governor could yet. Could be a throwaway, a yeah. throwaway character for a throwaway story. Yeah, and then maybe was later turned into Francis yeah. whenever it, it Karai needed. It feels like they've kind of followed, followed that beat of, oh, yes, the governor has a kid in a romance. Yeah. Not this one, but, you know, we have the, we have this romance going on. Yeah. So they place their bets, and he reveals his nice full house jacks over queens and he's he's very excited and in the most predictable of twists of all time because you know you don't deal with the devil and win our swamp hag has you know uh, also a full house with queens over jacks basically the exact opposite of his hand and so she uh she wins the game yep and in doing so they have to open these two pieces of truth or dare paper <laughs> And he wrote both of them, uh, basically what I get if I win versus what I give up if I lose. So he knows what's on them, but she she kind of twists the knife by opening it up and showing him. Uh, and in the well, one, she she wrote hers because she had hers under a hat and she pulled it out from her hat and there was a there was a frog on her, there was a toad on her head. Which also, why have we never gotten a Zoraida sculpt with a hat? That's a good question. Probably because Somer would would call her out. She needs a witch hat. 
Yeah. Um, which Zoretta? Hang on, no, because it, it says he knew what they said, he wrote them. Well, that's what he's offering. No, he knew what they said. Oh, the words. Yeah, so I assume they both wrote the same thing. They have to pledge, you know, to grant your one desire. So they both had the same thing on their notes, because she she offered us a note from her hat. Okay, got it, got it. But yeah, so he she opens up his truth or dare note, and it says, I pledge to grant your one desire, Jeremiah McCoy. You know, basically signed his contract. And he asks, terrified, what is it you want? And she simply says, your spleen. And he goes, don't I need that to live? She just pulls out a, an angler's knife from beneath the table. Don't know. No one's ever survived the taking. End scene. Zoraida, what you, what you need all them spleens for? For filling up her pickling jar wall, clearly. Mm, spleen golem. <laughs> Oh boy, that's a that's a thought that just crossed my mind. You're welcome. Oh boy, wouldn't a spleen golem be some kind of resurrection? Like you're 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 reanimating dead tissue. It's not a whole body. It can be, but... it can, can swamp fiend experimental. <laughs> I'll allow it. I don't know. They might have to call the marshals on you. Either way. Speaking of, well, first final final thoughts on buy a two card. The the fact that they never say Zoraida in there, which I'm really glad you pointed out. Like, just kind of skimming over it again as we were talking over it. I that definitely just sets up this. It it sets her up in the same way that like the previous Seamus stories story did for Seamus by by really showing how most people in Malifaux see her. Because as far as this I know, mysterious in, figure. Yeah, as far as I remember, in the first Ed book, like you see her first when Victoria's talking to her and reading a regular tarot. There's no spleens involved, and and that and and then she's hiring Victoria to go kill things. That by itself is is she's an interesting character, but you don't get the the dark side of it. Whereas this is again dark from the get-go and and more more than dark dark's not quite right because Zoraida's not evil like Seamus is but she's definitely creepy yeah like she is the she she is the one scooby-doo villain that is not a white dude in a mask at the end of the episode and the fact that (laughs) everything that has been chasing them around the haunted hotel in the bayou in this time was real is way more terrifying but yeah, no, I, I think that, again, this is a, a excellent introduction to the core of the character in ways that, because they're not trying to push the plot forward, this is more just setting up texture for the world, I think services the game as a whole very nicely. How about you? Oh, yeah, I... I mean, I completely agree. Like, it's... I think of of the stories in this particular volume, this is probably my favorite, just because it is so quick, and it it's just, you know, it's a very... Myst- it's, the, it's that deal It's that deal with the devil, that mm-hmm. mysterious figure. Like, it's it's just a quick, quick little, uh, quick little fable about why you don't, you don't barter with swamp witches. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I take it back. This is, this is not the, the least... It, it doesn't start the least pulp writer's prompt of the stories in this book. The next one does. Because the next one is most plot filled, I think. Kind of, but it also kind of has that down to the ground. But right, let's let's start on it. So the next one is The Death Marshals by Nick, no, Brian Emick. <laughs> <laughs> Not Nicholas Volker. 
Uh, he's he's he gets a break. Uh, he's done three so far, so we can we can give him give his writing writing hand a break. We're moving on to Brian Emick's Death Marshals. The Death Marshals. A well-titled tale. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, really kind of know what you're getting in for here. So we start off with a couple of Guild Guard, uh, Sergeant Williams and Captain Mordecai, who are investigating reports of a potential resurrectionist in a boarding house from one Percy Chauncey, who, I'm just going to say it, uh, he's a former Guild Guard and... I was going to say, he seems like the worst kind of landlord. Yeah. This is a guy who, if you're out an hour later than usual, he's 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 calling the cops just to see what you're up to. Yeah. His whole hobby is watch my tenants for things I can call them on. Yeah. And apparently he's a friend of the governor, which seems... That makes the governor seem like a more approachable guy than maybe we get in later versions. Later, later stories. Yeah, they just this this guy who really never made it past like you know any kind of rank in the guard is a close friend of the governor. You know, I mean, obviously there's people have different stories, but just seems from a from a further down the line perspective a bit out of place. Yeah, well, and was it because I'm trying to remember how that was specifically mentioned? Is it? He is a friend of the governor, or from what I hear, he's a friend of the governor. Yeah, it's it's kind of rumor, so maybe not. It might be like he may. It could be one of those like he met the governor once and then says he's a friend of the governor kind of situations. So mm-hmm. you could kind of read into that however you want, I suppose. Yeah, but yeah. So so the guild guard are here uh, and talking to Mister Chauncey Percy, uh, and he is to to the best way I can describe this. He is a customer calling into computer support, complaining about a problem without actually providing any anything other than he thinks there's a problem. Yeah, he, he can't reproduce the issue. <laughs> He's very much, uh, you know, a boy a boy who cries wolf, but he, he 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 cries it out, and every once in a while he's right, and that's why they listen to him. But he does it a lot, apparently. Yeah, and and these guild guard are essentially your your. They're the guys that answer the support phone and go, "Have you tried turning it off and on again?" And he's going, "No. Why would I do that? This is clearly a bigger problem." And he's arguing with them until Captain Mordecai comes in. Uh, at which point, Captain Mordecai actually just lets him talk for a while and isn't challenging him because he knows all the the supposed governor general friendness and also the the actual role behind letting Percy have this boarding house of yeah he's he's managed to find a couple of needles in the haystack a few times so running over here to if nothing else keep our recruits sharp on doing quick investigations isn't a bad thing and with as much as i give the the guild crap this was a, a nice, interesting way to showcase that they are just people, like they're doing their yeah, job. That's fair. And and uh, Sergeant Williams and Captain Mordecai have have a couple nice, like buddy cop moments. And buddy cop isn't quite right because one of them is a captain and the other one is the sergeant. But it's it's very clear that Mordecai is like, oh yes, you're you're a good you're a good cop essentially, and you know what you're doing, and you're 
you are competent and, you know, keep talking like that and I'll think you want to get promoted. And they, they have some good interactions. They have some banter. Yes. And they go up to this, this room and they investigate it and nobody's there. It's lived in, but, you know, nothing out of the ordinary. We're after, we're after a suspect of Horace Winters is our apparent necromancer, for which they have no evidence to suggest that he would be such a thing. I'm, I'm just going to say it. That's a good name, but not for a resurrectionist. It, it's no Jane Goodbody, if you will. Um, <laughs> oh, Goodbody. That'll, that'll get me. That'll get me every time. <laughs> but yeah, no, he, he's, he's not there. And they're... This is where they have some of their, their quick talking interaction of like, why are, why are we listening to Percy? This is another one of his dead ends. Da, 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 da. He, friend of the governor, etc. And they blow out the candle and they stop. And then Captain Mordecai keeps talking like they need to leave. And they make an interesting show of let's walk out of the room, close it. Talk outside the room like we need to leave and just leave one guard here overnight in case anything weird happens. And at this point, the, the sergeant is catching on and goes down the stairs, walking loudly, and returns, walking very quietly, and they both pull out their swords and get ready to go back in the room. And all of this is because whenever they blew out the candle, after a second, they realized there was some kind of light under a very, like, slim... A break under another door that they couldn't see in the room. Secret room. Secret tunnel. So yeah, so they uh, they bust back in and find their uh, find their perp, which is this uh, this Horace Winters fella who seems to be uh, he, he he presents as a fairly honest man, just trying to do his job. Uh, doesn't like that the uh, that Mister Percy likes to uh, snoop about all the time. And so they, they question him for a bit, try to, you know, well, are, are you a necromancer? And I, I honestly, like, I, I, I don't blame <laughs> Horace here for, you know, well, if I was, would I say, would I, would I say yes? And they're like, don't be coined. It's like, well, I mean, he's not wrong. Yeah. Like, entirely, because, I mean, spoilers, he is a necromancer. Wait, what? Why would he actually say yes to that question? But they question him. I, I actually really like his, because the first question they ask him is, why were you hiding in the secret closet? And his answer is basically, I was in, I, I have things in there that I just don't like Horace to, or don't like uh, Percy to, to look at. And, you know, presumably he's talking about some kind of valuables, which first off, if it's Percy's boarding house, he knows where the secret door is, unless you've been like, <laughs> Right? Cutting into his walls without him noticing. Did he make his own secret room? (laughs) Maybe? I don't don't know. Or maybe he found it and presumed nobody else had, because Dreamer's architecture. Actually, yeah, that that makes the most sense, because, I mean, they found it somehow, and it was still a secret at the time. Yeah, but anyway, so he, he actually has a pretty good answer for that one of, I was in there at the moment, weird people came into my room, and I didn't want to, you know, get in trouble for having a secret door. Okay, that's that's plausible. Are you a necromancer? Would I answer that pro- truthfully if I was? But yeah, so that, and they're like, okay, cool, come along. Let's let's examine you, pretty much like we did whenever you came through the breach the first time. Which 
is an interesting point of essentially not magical quarantine, but oh, you got off the the yeah they they the train. do magical physicals yeah we, you got off the train we have to make sure you didn't gain magic power whenever you came through the breach turn your head and cough <laughs> <laughs> we'll check if lightning comes out of your nose <laughs> or anywhere else <laughs> and he's like oh okay fine can I at least get dressed first I'm like sure and. Obviously, this is going far too well. <laughs> yeah, uh, at which point, murder. So he he just slashes William's throat just on a on on a need to escape at this point because he knows if he gets observed, he's going to be going to be found out. So he he does the slashy on Williams and busts out the window and starts making making his way across the uh, the rooftops. Point of, of fact, he does not slash. He whispers not? words that are too quiet for Magical Williams. Slash. Yeah, he he whispers words that are too quiet for William to even hear, causing his neck to explode. <laughs> oh, I missed that. That makes more sense. <laughs> yeah, um, his neck exploded and sprayed blood all across Mordecai's face across the room. <laughs> Ugh, that's a that's a bad way. Yeah, and and in that uh that confusion, he uh our our resurrectionist. Bust through a window, four stories up, but then, you know, basically old London Sherlock Holmesian narrow alleys. He jimmies over to the other, other building. I like, I like Mordecai here who picks up his sword like a spear and throws it yeah. at him. Like, alright, that's not how you're supposed to use that, but I mean, you tried. It's a bold play, sir. Yep. Oh, hang on. Cause that. What's up? What well, that just that just occurred to me. He throws the sword like a spear, but then whenever he's trying to get out the window to follow uh, Winters, he can't because it turns out Winters didn't just explode his friend's neck. He also zombified him, and that turns him into a a speed bump of "I'm gonna grab your ankle before you can jump out the window." Yeah. At which point he has his sword back. And he chops he, off his they head. Mention, they mention he grabs it. Like, he goes okay. and picks it up when he's going to get through the window. Okay. I figured there was something like that. I just missed it. Or wasn't remembering yeah, it, that specific it's one of the, detail. Yeah, he, retrieved his, he retrieved his sword and started okay. to crawl through the window. Cool. And then and then Williams, zombie Williams, grabs him. Uh, which is, you know, probably not great. Probably not a great feeling to have your protege cop grab you on the ankle. So he has to cut his head off. Yeah, the struggle in his mind was brief but painful. Like really good sentence there. Yeah, yeah, good, good, uh, good, good feelings yeah. to be putting into this situation, and and also showing like there's a reason that Mordecai is a captain. He's yeah. probably had to do this before. And now with with evidence of a resurrectionist threat, he rejoins with the rest of the guard at the uh, entrance of the boarding house and calls for reinforcements. And calls to his last guard and says, go get the marshals. And the guard is thoroughly shocked because the marshals are kind of a big deal. Yeah. And for as big of a deal as they are, they have their own wagon. <laughs> they get their own wagon? Yeah. And I, this, is, wild. this is one of those details that I don't remember really reading before. Like, we we don't ever really see the traveling of people in town. It's just like, oh, they they left they the, are there. Yeah, yeah, they they left the guild enclave and made their way to blah blah blah. And 
sans, hey, they took a horse or hey, they took a wagon, which I don't recall being pointed out before. I've always just imagined them walking, but this is the judge driving the wagon and Lady J sitting next to him and they have marshals in the back. Yep. And uh, the judge is pimped out. Oh, dude. Dude, this, this, uh, he's got, apparently, like, original concept, he's got a white trench coat? Like, yeah. Or a white duster? Yep. Goddamn. Yep. That's a, that's a, that's a bold look for a man who's gonna be getting down and dirty with some, with some zombies, like. Yeah. Well, I'm into that. And the, they actually show the art for, for him a couple pages later, and it's, it's one of the colorized pieces of art. He's got the, like, black knee-high leather boots. And this is, I've, I recognize the art for this model because I've, I've painted it. It's the old, uh, 1E judge where he's almost like anime break dancing with these huge gloves. Just about, yeah. Yeah. Um, and he's got his, like, his sword gun with the chain attached to it because he's going to throw it at people. But th- this looks somewhere between a, uh, like, a, again, big pimp and cowboy and Michael Jackson, <laughs> but anime. And that is just super dope. <laughs> it's really cool. But like, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen art of the judge before in anything but a, a black or brown duster. Yeah. The, the, the male judge, anyway. I know that's going to be different for our our new 3E judge. Or even a red duster, because he's yeah. like a guild. Yeah. But yeah, 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 I guess the original concept is in a white duster, which is... Ah, oh, that's so cool. Well, I love that. Well, you know what that gives me vibes of? That gives me that gives me thoughts of Batman wears dark colors so that he doesn't get shot at. Robin wears bright colors so <laughs> Batman doesn't get shot at. <laughs> well, I mean, on the other hand, the first edition version of Lady Justice is uh, wearing some clothing. <laughs> this is also true, though it is dark clothing mostly. That's true, <laughs> and bright red hair and porcelain skin. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, uh, very cool character art for the judge. And essentially they, Mordecai briefs them on what's going on. And it's funny because he starts telling them, Hey, there's a resurrectionist and they're, they just cut him off. We know we're already here. That's the only reason we come here. here. (laughs) I get it. But like, it's weird to me that justice is described as being angry about this. Cause like, yeah, but this is also your job. Like, yeah, maybe step it back a minute. (laughs) I have, I have I have issues with how how justice is written in this story. Yeah, it, but we'll, we'll get there. Yeah, it's it's different than we've seen more recently. She, she has grown she, over she time. She grows up. <laughs> yeah, she grows up. Yeah, that's that's how I have to justify it. Is that she grows up from this point? Yeah, you get a little bit of a, a creeper vibe from Mordecai as he's greeting her because he's all like, "Oh, she smells so nice," and he's he's eyeballing her real hard. I mean, yeah, it's a little, it's a little weird, but also like, I do like the description of like, yeah, I know it's weird to say, but like the description that she smells nice, but like, it's described in that like because she and the marshals get paid enough that I mean, that's weird though. Yeah, I guess it'd just be her because the marshals probably don't smell great given when, what and they I'm, are. I'm kind of wondering if that's why the nice smell is there. You're covering up the death smell. That makes well, and that's further on but that does make sense but yeah the fact that he notices that they bathe <laughs> yeah but yeah he, he sends him up there and which he's a captain so like yeah man guild pays some shit wages that's all i'm gonna say i i remember having a discussion with doug about this a while back i think it's like a, a guild guard gets like two script a week oh my fucking god dude yeah it's it's real bad 
that's 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 a yikes from me, dog. Yeah. But anyway, he he sends or she she sends the judge up to investigate first, and she has a chat with Mordecai. During he he actually drops well as much as he would more more than I was expecting him to with a superior officer and especially with justice, he kind of drops the the professional guard thing and basically gets real upset that uh Williams died and was resurrected. And she straight up says, Hey, whenever we catch the bastard, I'll make sure you get time alone with him before we finish him off. I mean she did ask. Like yeah. she asked specifically about his about Williams's character, she asked if he was a good man. Yeah, but there, there's there's a fairly large step between was the guy that died on, in the line of duty a good man, and we will let you like torture the guy that yeah. killed him officially. And, and that's, that, that's that's the start of the, the issues I have with this writing of justice is that she's kind of she doesn't feel as she's written like she's in this position of authority. Yeah, like she she feels like. She, she plays very out of it, which seems different than we get later on. But, yeah. you know, again, characters change. One one aspect of this, because after that, they she heads up to the room and, and the judge is there. And the aspect of the two of them casing this room is interesting. Because she very clearly can somehow see the general shape of the room because she'll like give him directions of what's this what's that but it'll be in the in the details of like papers on the desk what's written there so she can see the papers but obviously not what's written on them with her super echolocation and i just seeing those that interaction between them i don't remember them doing that in later uh stories and this was another nice piece of texture that i think had i read this initially i would just automatically put that in whenever the two of them are in a room talking about stuff. Yeah. I also get a little look at like some more of the judge that like, he's got a, apparently has a very heavy accent and I, I want to know what it is. Cause we don't really get any indication, but from the way it's written, it could like, it could maybe be Scottish or I don't know, Cajun or Aussie even maybe it could be, but that also makes me think again with, with coming into it later edition eyes, where we've seen like what happens to death marshals that have been doing this for too long, where they start to kind of decay. And I believe there's a story at one point where like the bandana gets knocked off of his face or somebody sees it before he can pull it back up. And his jaw is like all but decayed off. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yeah. It could be a, a side effect of the, of the, the death marshaling. Yeah. Cause presumably he's, at this point, the one that's been doing it the longest. Yeah, because I wanted to pick your brain about that because I couldn't. I couldn't think of a specific heritage he might have that would give him such a strong manner of speaking, but that could also be yeah due to a physical limitation. Yeah, because the all, all we know is that like his last name is Hart. Is she says yeah, and that's at some point she calls him Hart. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. Uh, hang on. Where is that? Because that jumped out at me too. <laughs> yes, because it's when they first. Uh, enter or when she first enters the room and he says, you know, bodies on the floor here. And then that's when they get into describing how he spoke. It actually comes out as Ari's on the law here. Yeah. Which is the only time that they've in this story written out 
like improper English writing for an accent. And, yeah. but the, the thing is, she doesn't call it an accent or she doesn't think of it as an accent. She thinks of it as an odd manner of speaking, which is the other thing that jumped out to me is like, wait a second, isn't there a story where like he's missing a, most of his jaw? That many, yeah, that many found too hard, found hard to understand. Yeah. Yeah. And she hardly noticed anymore. Yeah. All right. So I think this is, again, more foreshadowing of that. I could totally be wrong, and we have this cool Scottish Aussie judge. Some kind of bastardized accent. Yeah, she she calls him Deerheart, as in, like, a term of endearment. Because that heart is... I assume that that was a name, though. Is it capitalized? No, it's not. Uh, Okay, never mind then. Okay. I thought I thought it was capitalized. Yeah, and she she calls him that after he grumbles at her like I don't like how he looks at you talking about Mordecai. So we we already have their the two of them being an item or alluding to it already. I mean, it's pretty clear cut, especially yeah. here. Yeah. But yeah, no. So we we already have that and I think between that and the the quote-unquote accent, I I think that's just foreshadowing of jawlessness. Makes sense. Okay, gotcha. Uh, Alright, so where were we? So they do, they do CSI Malifaux, uh, investigating our, uh, our room here. And they find that, uh, Mr. Winters has left a trail of blood out the window. So they're going to, tr- they send the, the marshals to follow that, and they're going to take the wagon and follow. Yeah, and, and all three of the marshals just, like, don't make a sound as they rush over to the window and jump out of it to the top of the building next to them. With coffins on their backs. Yeah. They're ninja cowboys. Zombie ninja cowboys. <laughs> Pretty cool. Yeah, and then we jump back to Horace's point of view with his badly bleeding leg as he's running across the uh, the rooftops. And the marshals catch up to him while he's trying to think of a place to hole up for a while uh, and taking a mental uh, inventory of who could help him out or hide him or... Yeah, it doesn't, uh, doesn't have a lot of friends he trusts to keep him safe, especially since he feels like he's been sold out. Yeah. Which, I mean, I don't really feel like he was. He just has a paranoid landlord. Yeah. <laughs> like, you just got unlucky, bud, but, you know, I guess you don't really trust any of your uh, necromancer buddies. Yeah, when... I, I kind of imagine most necromancers look at each other like if... I don't know if 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 humans like talked to cows as peers, necromancers would look at each other like cows that could be hamburger. Yeah, it's fair. That's a that's a pretty apt metaphor given uh, given what happens later. Yeah, I I had to hoof it to that one, but I got there. <sighs> so yeah, so uh, <laughs> he has a close call with the marshals who catch up to him on the roof with their almost beating him with the coffins. Yeah, they're they're cowboy ninjas with throwing coffin stars. Right, that would uh, that would that would probably hurt if you got absolutely just blasted by a coffin in the face. Yeah, I can only imagine that does not feel good. Uh, and he manages to evade these three, you know, highly trained, very skilled, specifically at hunting resurrectionist death marshals. But he managed to avoid them and sneak into a warehouse. So. uh... That doesn't look too good on our our three uh, our three death marshals. Yeah, yeah. They kind of have to go. They kind of have to go groveling back to Lady Justice. Like he's uh he's in there. We uh we didn't get him. Oops. Yeah. I th- and and I kind of wonder how much of that is 
they're essentially her hounds trying to to tree their prey. But yeah, a warehouse is not ideal for that. There there could but be I, multiple. On the other hand, for... she's she is specifically disappointed with them and not catching them. Like she yeah. just expected them to catch him and be done. That's by the fair. time they get back to her, or she catches up at the warehouse. So they 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 follow him into this warehouse. More chase ensues. And and that's honestly another another, I think, differing aspect between justice now and more recent timeline justice. I can't think of a time when she's been disappointed in her marshals. She's always worried for them. Like she she is a good leader that is conscientious of the dangers they put themselves in, both by hunting resurrectionists and what allows them to do that. But I, I can't think of a time when she's been disappointed by them. She's She seems very almost overly confident in this story. And I wonder if it's just because the resurrectionists they've had to face so far haven't been like on the level of like, like Seamus is just getting a start. Nicodem hasn't even really started making moves yet. Yeah. McMorning, I mean, McMorning's, you know, still undercover of the guild. So I feel like any of the resurrectionists that she's catching are, you know, the weak end of the lit, the, you know, the weak link in the chain. So she's feeling very confident. And then all of a sudden, one of these guys is getting particularly clever. And it's, you know, it's disappointing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, she's disappointed. And the judge and her have a moment, which hits different these days when he says, you know, she she says, you know, what would I do without you? And he says, the same thing I would do without you. Cease living. Yeah, that's... That, uh, mm. that hits different these days. In a couple different ways, honestly. Like, it, it hits different because, okay, now that this judge is dead, does justice cease living? Or is he more directly saying that she is somehow responsible for whatever sanctioned necromancy the marshals do she's responsible for it keeping them from going all the way that is a fair read yeah no that that has my wheels turning now good call out sure he stays dead but yeah it's just that 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 line in particular just like coming back on it now that uh judge has bitten the dust definitely uh definitely stands out yeah they're 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 roused from their their cute moment uh by a scream which is our our necromancer who is cornered by the marshals who have chased him into the warehouse and he is he's cornered like a rat and 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 he has the the gall like as he's cornered to shout out at them stay back you don't know what i can do and on on the one hand like all right you're you're pretty brash and brazen for that on the other hand this is a case where i think I think this is a, what you're talking about where justice is kind of supremely confident to the point of arrogance. But for what we've seen of her since then, I, I feel like this particular line is, is in character fairly well of whispering when he does that. And you don't know what we can do. Yeah. And then, uh, and then he, uh, do, do, does a little tricky and, uh, casts a little spell, a decay on the floor. And uh, the floor breaks away because it's made of wood, presumably. Mm-hmm. And uh, he makes his his daring escape away from the marshals who had him cornered. And the judge is nowhere to be seen, which has has justice a bit a bit very concerned. Yeah, and it it is it is understandably chaos for a moment. <laughs> yeah, and I guess again this comes from an angle of knowing justice as a more mature character, but like you know you're getting into a dangerous situation. I feel like she loses her cool a bit here. Yeah. It's it's a little more not naive, but which again, I th- I feel like she's not used to being having someone get the drop on her like that. Which I would agree with, other than 
the otherwise excellent line outside of that problem of when they find the the judge and she asks him, hey, do you do you know where the other marshals are? No, I, I lost track of that. And then he calls out, I hate that spell. And she says, uh-huh. so do I. So I'm like, I feel like this trick has been pulled on them before, or if not this one specifically, other interesting uses of decay. Yeah. So I, overall, I agree with you. But in, in this specific case, it's like the writing's kind of fighting itself just a little bit. Yeah, there's there's certain points where like they want to they, they have her one way and then they want to have her another way and it yeah. just doesn't quite matter perfectly yet yeah she she hadn't settled into into the character she will become i think yeah but yeah so we, we find the judge and after that we we also end up finding horus and the judge does a smart thing whenever fighting any kind of mage cut off his hands yeah pinned, doesn't pinned under a coffin and has been disarmed or disanded y- yes i was gonna say not quite disarmed but we're getting there and yeah considering like no hands presumably therefore no magic, which, like we started off the book with, is with, uh, with Gabriel. You didn't bring a gun to the magic fight. Uh, you should have. Although in this case, you don't have hands to pull the trigger anyway. But despite all that, he, he does a pretty good job of keeping his cool. Yeah, he, he, he kind of stonewalls him. Cause I mean, I think he realizes he's done for anyways. Because they they want to know where where he learned you know the dark the dark craft of necromancer ne- necromancy and he just like no I'm I'm dead anyways yeah but he's he's got a little trick up his up his sleeve because apparently he already cast decay again <laughs> before he lost his hands so we get the same thing the floor falls out from under everybody. How many floors does a warehouse have before it just hits street? <laughs> well, I mean, apparently it fit, fit like like sewer runoff into the river. I guess. Yeah, that's fair. Is what he what he ends up falling into? Which would also make sense on why the decay takes longer if you're like decaying stone or just sturdier ground. That yeah. will take less time than than second floor wood, I guess. Yep. So he. He slips away, and I do. I do really love the 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 Lady Justice. Like all this happens, and she's like, "He did it again, didn't he?" Because <laughs> she can just she can just hear the water running, and she's like, "She's just she's just having the worst day of her life so far. It is it has never gone this poorly." And prom's tomorrow. And prom was tomorrow. <laughs> uh. Oh. Yeah, and and judge in this case balances her out because she's going no, I I want him. I'm out for blood. Uh, balances her out. Yeah, and and judge goes. He was running around with no hands, bleeding, and fell into probably sewer water. Just let him go. Yeah. He will die of blood loss and or sepsis and or any number of horrible things. Yes, yeah, he's rat. And she's like, but but I but I promised. Uh huh. I promised I'd let the the corporal or whatever have his way with this necromancer and the judge is like that's great but no we're not we're not trudging through sewer water to chase down this already dead man yeah which i mean good good on him for being the 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 stable one yeah and the marshals head out to presumably go fill out paperwork yeah all the the fun things in uh law enforcement life yeah and then we have a little epilogue. Yeah, a nice little, a nice little uh, end cap to our story, where uh, Mr. Horace Winters washes up at the end of this river runoff 
and is uh, greeted by uh, everybody's fa- favorite Gravedigger Mortimer. Hello, Governor. Now he- Hello, Governor. Now he's he's one I feel like. I think the only thing that has changed about him as far as character development since this scene is his vocabulary. And, and Nico's dead. Yeah, but as far he's, as he's a little, he's a little sad that his boss died. Yeah, that's fair. A little bit. Yeah, no, I, 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 I like Mortimer as just yeah, this very stable, very Malifaux character. He's obnoxious. He's he'll talk your ear off, ask you a million questions. I never actually say anything of substance back to you, but he will get everything out of you because he just keeps asking questions until you have no choice but to, to answer. I, you know what I really want? I want a story where we get at least two, preferably like three or four uh, characters who all have chatty. I want them all in the same room. Yeah. Like, ne- never has a rule more uh, perfectly articulated what a character is all about, and that is Morty is a chatty man. Mm-hmm. And he's just asking all these, all these, uh, all these questions about Mister Mister Horace Winters. You know, what's your name? What's your job? Oh, you're a desperate man. Surely your, uh, surely your family or you know your wife or must be looking for you. You could be sick or you, you know you know what. No one knows what happens to you, and he's just asking these probing questions. Mm-hmm. Basically, when it comes down to it, will anyone miss you if you die and or disappear? Yep. <laughs> the answer to which, of course, is no. Only or, Lady uh, Justice. Horace. <laughs> Horace only has Horace. <laughs> Which Nicodem, who reveals himself, is uh, more than happy to hear that this is a, you know, no, a crime with no witnesses beyond even Horus. And Nico greets our injured necromancer with all the flair and kindness of a fancy uh, mortician. And tells him, yes, well, uh, you know, fate has brought you to us and uh, is most fortunate indeed. And then Morty chops the man's head off with the shovel. And then removes the cigar from his mouth, blows on it, and puts it in his own mouth to yep, Nico's really plain good. disgust. Yeah, yeah. This, this interaction, I really <laughs> like. I really like this. This little. It's a good introduction to these characters. Yeah this this is about as close to like if Pinky and the Brain were Malifaux characters. Oh yeah, like th- this is about as close as you get as far as personal interaction. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's, it's very much the straight man and the fool. Yeah, and I I think it's interesting, as, as far as, like, wrap-up thoughts on this whole story, it, it's it's super fitting that we have Justice and Nico initial introductions in Chronicles here. Yeah. Be in the same story, even though... Yeah, there's there's a lot of a lot of ties to how how things end. You know, we got Nico and Justice kind of bookending a story together here. Mm-hmm. We got the call out with the judge. Yeah, that, there's some uh, this this kind of as as kind of the first end of this timeline. Yeah, fits really well. Yeah, and I I think this one and this is the the longest of the stories in this chronicle, and that may have something to do with it. But I think this one has the most. The most setup to pay off later in of of all of them, like we we get great character interactions and introductions in all of them, and like you you get you get Seamus and Molly for the first time, and and that as we discussed hits slightly differently in in ways that later ones don't, but really set up both of them well. But I know what it is. This is cool because you're essentially setting up 
for for all Seamus's bluster and and based on his psychosis, understandable uh, focus on justice. Nico has always been her true like nemesis, which is why we we got to where they got to of fight. One of you goes home in a bucket. Spoiler alert for anybody, and uh, presumably we'll eventually get there if these go on this long. But the cool thing they do here is and and for a, a short story i'll i'll be interested to see how much they they do this going forward with nico and justice but they do what i like to call they pull a fifth element for anybody who's seen the fifth element the protagonist and antagonist in that movie never are they they never meet face to face yeah and that movie does wonderful things with with uh not to get too far off track here but wonderful things with the dialogue where it will cut away in scenes in mid conversation. So you will see like the antagonist answering a question or asking a question. And then the protagonist scene that it cuts to someone else answers that question. So there's a lot of interaction, but it's never directly. Exactly. It's, it's interaction as far as the audience is concerned. And I feel like that's, that's got, that has to be the way they do it. Cause as far as I know, justice never knows the identity of, Nico, yeah, directly the, as as her as her nemesis, yeah, because the closest they get is when he's necromancer, yeah, is when he's training Karai in the tower, and like Hamlin shows up, and yeah, they she almost gets him then, but Hamlin shows up and they drop a tower on everybody, yeah, and she never directly sees who this this necromancer is, yeah, that is, I hadn't even thought about it like that. Everybody go watch the Fifth Element. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That is also a good point. That's a great movie. Mm-hmm. So yeah, as far as you know, a- initial fluff, uh, really introducing more characters this time. I think this is this. These are some great introductions, especially coming at this from we've read second and third ed like main books, but we haven't read all the chronicles. Like, there's a lot of good, and and I I like the way I described it earlier of. None of this is trying to move the plot forward. This is just character introduction and providing texture to the world. This is the kind of thing that as people try out things like Through the Breach, or if you're just running any old RPG, these are the kind of interactions you want to set up with. Not everything has to be pushed the plot forward, and you will be better served by, don't think about the plot, think about character interaction. Whether it's NPC, like your your random person at the bar versus like the big bad or maybe the big bad is in the bar turns out like you never know yeah anyway little little rpg side thoughts there i've been thinking in terms of through the breach lately and reading these has really kind of brought that spark out in me of like how do i get the the feel of malifaux and reading this is is really giving me that that gas yeah there's 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 so much so much to love like it's, it can be grim, but like there's still that that certain flavor, that certain color to it that still is appealing for sure. And and in so many different flavors, it's a Malifaux is the the Neapolitan ice cream of <laughs> of uh, RPG settings, or really just fantasy settings in general. There is something for everyone, and you can mix and match however you want. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I think that brings us to the end of this one. Uh, I'm already looking forward to the next one. No doubt. Uh, so until next time, fellow and fair listeners, read on. Read on. That sounds like a way to end this episode. <laughs> sure. We'll go with it. 
<laughs> I know we said something in the first one, but you know. No, we really just babbled for like a minute going, uh, we don't know how to end this. And we still don't. That's why we're still babbling. But read on, right. folks. It sounds good. Read on. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for listening. And uh, we'll be back for the next one. Thanks for sticking uh, with us. Good night, everybody. And good night. Songs used in this production are Villainous Treachery and Five Card Shuffle. All music is created by Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.